This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I had the great chance to talk with Susan Merrill Squire about her 2017 book, Epigenetic Landscapes, Drawings as Metaphor. The book is about media and specifically uh, representations in biology and ecology. And the book looks at how beings and their environments, their natural environments, political environments, uh, institutional environments, mutually and simultaneously shape each other. As Squire puts it, the aim of the book is to access more complex understandings of development at multiple scales. The epigenetic landscape to which the title refers is a uh, form of representation of the embryo in a particular context. And so the book looks at the ways in which this representation of the epigenetic landscape has been used in other fields, but also how it shaped the field of embryology itself. So in a variety of cases and really beautiful chapters, the book looks at the field of embryology, of graphic medicine, landscape design, and bioart. I had the chance to talk with Susan Merrill Squire along with four students in my graduate course at Vanderbilt, New Approaches to Science and Technology Studies. Those students were Beatrice Satizabal, Leia Lamote Nakon, Henning Ander, and Rebecca Rahimi. I hope you enjoy. So, Susan, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us about your really wonderful new book, Epigenetic Landscapes. I wanted to start off by talking about what the epigenetic landscape um, is or was or the many things that it was. Um, And specifically, I want to um, have you um, sort of describe a bit the very first epigenetic landscape that appeared in the book Organizer and Gene by um, Conrad Waddington. And this was this uh, one particular piece was a painting, a landscape painting um, by the landscape artist and, uh, well, among other things, a landscape artist, um, John Piper. So could you explain the epigenetic landscape? Sure. Um, That's that's a lovely place to start. Waddington wanted an image that would sort of form a visual index of the way that development occurred. But what's so interesting and what got me really started on this is that coming up with an image, he decided he wanted to commission it from his friend, the modern artist John Piper. And so he asked his friend to draw the epigenetic landscape. And what we have is a lovely drawing that shows a river um, flowing between very steeply channeled banks and um, with some brambles in the foreground. And you can see the river tumbling along it. It's a very active river. And um, at the very back of this image, there are clouds. And um, I found it, I mean, obviously, it's great to think that here's the scientist who wants an image for the new uh, genetic field, genetic and um, embryological field that he's creating, right, at the interstice of these two things, but that he chooses this image um, as a model. And what's even cooler about this, actually, is that when he describes what the image is for him, uh, his description is a little wacky. It's um, not a, you wouldn't think of it as a very clear scientific description. It's almost poetical. So he talks about it as, um, and I'm doing this from memory, he talks about the image as the river is flowing away into the mountains and the seas at the back. So it 
almost doesn't make sense because, of course, gravity would suggest a river can't flow up toward the mountains. And um, he talks about it also as giving him some kind of peace because it allows him to image something that's pretty difficult for a very stodgy kind of simple biologist to think about, but this image does it for him. So um, that's lovely. His description, I mean, uh, I could read the whole description. I don't know if we want to take the time, but um, what he says is, uh, looking down the main valley toward the sea, as the river flows away into the mountains, it passes a hanging valley, then two branch valleys on its left bank. In the distance, the sides of the valleys are steeper and more canyon-like. So um, that's the image of the first one. Uh, that's the first image. Uh, the image then, and I don't know, if you, are you okay with me just going on into the other images? Or do you want to stop with that? Well, let me just ask a quick um, a quick follow up question, and then sure. I'd love to hear about the have you um, yeah. talk a bit about the other images. Um, and the first thing to say also is that Waddington, of course, um, was the one who really came up with the term and the concept very early on of the field of epigenetics. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and it, yeah, in its, in its um, sort of. Uh, a version of its present day iteration. And one of the things that you really nicely observe and um, sort of pull through the whole book is that Waddington himself had uh, not only interest, but training in fields other than uh, what are conventionally thought of as sort of the mainstream um, biological or life sciences. And that yeah. this um, sort of interdisciplinarity is absolutely key to being able to think in ways that sort of open out to forms of plasticity and diversity in biology. And so the issue of um, interdisciplinarity and um, reading this book as a critique of narrow disciplinarity, which you also see, um, I think, as I, I feel like you're showing that you can see the, um, the narrowness of disciplinary thinking that is possible uh, by reading this landscape image as a critique as well. Um, so I just wanted to flag that. And, um, and yeah, have you talk about the other um, iterations of the epigenetic landscape? Sure, happy to. And thank you. But you totally nailed what I'm working at in the book. So I'm very happy. You're absolutely right. Um, so so what's interesting is when the next landscape, when the next, sorry, epigenetic landscape image is created, Waddington has moved away quite a bit from the artistic, uh, very kind of poetic, artistic visual image of the first. And we have something that looks much more schematic. It's a ball on a hill, and it's done in a sort of line drawing. It almost looks as if maybe it's been engraved. We have been unable to find the person who did it. But it's a ball on a hill, and the hill has um, channels running down it. And um, the sense is that the ball is going to roll down the hill uh, to the bottom of those channels. And um, so there we are with a pretty cut and dried, pretty abstract image of what is intended to be either an embryo or a totipotent cell on the top of its cell fate. In other words, before anything has happened. So the gravity there <laughs> stands in for the passage of time. 
which is interesting, uh, since as the ball rolls down the hill, it rolls into one channel and another as it's deflected from the various influences on it. And again, that it's meeting in time, even though it's represented as gravity in space. And when it gets to the bottom of the hill, the idea is that it's attained its cell fate. In other words, that cell that was a pluripotent cell that could develop into anything has become a cheek cell or has become a fertilized egg, which is about to become a baby, you know, which is about to grow into a fetus or a tooth cell or whatever. So that's the second one. And um, one of the things that's so interesting to me about that image is how detached it seems from the sort of embodied experiences that it speaks of and testifies to, as opposed to the first image, which really does seem pretty grounded in a relationship to the environment, the world out there, very non-detached. So that's the second one. And uh, the third image Waddington just basically takes the second image and imagines it from the underside. So you have that same hill, but this time you see it as if from underneath, and you see these strings that he calls guy wires that are pulling the hill one way and another. And he's basically trying to show you from underneath what the various pressures are that causes um, that totipotent cell to go in one way or another, to genes to express in one way, moving the cell toward one cell fate or in another. So again, we're here, we're still with the schema. It's still quite schematic, but it's more elaborated and you can see sort of the, the why and, and how of development imaged in that one. Okay. And one of the things that, um, uh, is interesting to notice about the different images. So moving from the um, the sort of the richer drawing that you started with is that there are 17 years um, intervening. Is that right between the yes. the different images? And um, yeah. so there's a during that time period the development of the field of epigenetics itself. Um, you sort of take us to these moments where there are various ways in which the field itself might have developed. Um, and it ended up moving in a way that, if I'm reading you correctly, um, has tended to be a bit more rigid, sort of almost another form of um, genetic determinism, almost, mm-hmm. um, that has sort of shied away from thinking um, in terms of a more contextual process-based, multi-scale sort of field, even though I think it's often conventionally thought of that way. You're showing some of the the limits to that. And in part that happened um, because of a particular reading of cybernetics um, in in those two decades in which epigenetics itself was taken more in the direction of an analogy with language and code that worked well Mm -hmm. with genetics and sort of the standard existing model and sort of shied away from um, plasticity, diversity, process-oriented, context-based thinking about Mm -hmm. about epigenetics. And you sort of capture the things that are are, um, sort of go missing in the field and that you see also uh, go missing when you move from epigenetics into landscape architecture later in the book to think about biology and ecology together. 
Um, and this is all sort of flying um, for you under the banner of feminism. So one of the things we wanted um, to ask you about was your um, your conception of feminism and the ways in which you see it inflecting this book with your um, really, I think, generous fare, and, and, but uh, really generous um, references to uh, Sarah Richardson and Evelyn Fox Keller and really shining the spotlight on other scholars as well. So I'm going to hand, um, hand the mic over to Henning for this question. Great. Yeah, so as I continued to read your book, I continuously noticed themes of feminist epistemology, as Professor Stark mentioned, um, particularly ideas from Sandra Harding. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just would like you to talk a little bit more about these ideas and sort of how they might be useful for us to think about. That's great. And yes, you know, I was actually quite surprised. I guess Sandra Harding was probably the first feminist science study scholar I read years and years and years ago. And what happens, as you probably know, when you read somebody so deeply, they enter your cells and then you don't cite them because you feel them so strongly. So, you know, um, I know Sandra Harding. I admire her work tremendously. Obviously, I had sort of drunk the Kool-Aid, and so I didn't cite her. But absolutely, um, her concept of strong objectivity, which then refracts also through the work of Bruno Latour and many others, it has two two aspects that I think are absolutely crucial for the kind of feminist science studies I do. And the first one, as she talks about it, is giving symmetrical accounts of ideas. Latour talks about it the same way, in a sense, um, later. That you investigate an idea both, um, you know, for what works and for what doesn't work and for what seems scientific and what seems cultural. So you don't Cut, you don't create boundaries and say everything outside that um, aspect is not relevant. For Harding, that certainly means um, you do not say science is science and everything outside, culture, psychology, whatever you want, to, is not relevant. Instead, you really follow where it leads you and look at um, you look at all of the influences on a developing thought or a developing experiment, including the ones that may be explicitly negated by the scientist or author, because often those are as powerfully influential, but they just aren't taken in to what seems like a comfortable disciplinary framework, if that makes sense. Um, I have a student right now who's just written a brilliant dissertation on um, pseudoscience, and he uses Harding wonderfully to talk about how those areas that seem outside of science um, seem that are designated pseudoscience actually serve science and are part of the thinking process of doing scientific work, even when they are denied explicitly. And if if you think of Waddington's case, absolutely, um, his experience of being really profoundly influenced by mysticism and Gnosticism, um, even while 
he says at one point in his life that those don't have anything to do with his experimental science. In fact, they are very much part of what he was thinking about when he was coming up with epigenetics. So that's one thing I, I really like to do is make sure I'm investigating on all sides of something. And then the other thing, and I think this is deeply feminist too, is um, this concept of reflexivity. So that when you're looking at something, you um, really ask what your positioning is as you look at it and try to see what you might not see because you're not examining your own standpoint. Um, you know, Donna Haraway makes this point, extends this point beautifully, as does Evelyn Fox Keller. So uh, I think there was a, I had a really early, I mean, before the book came out, wonderful interchange with Sarah Ahmed about this when um, she was saying, well, feminist science study scholars uh, are too devoted to men. They're not sufficiently devoted to the women in the tradition of science. And I sort of wrote against that, not saying because it seems to me like to read Waddington is not to be devoted to him in a kind of narrow way. It's to explore the things he was thinking about and the connections there and the parts of his own experience that he might even have denied and written off, but to still profoundly influenced him, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Does that Thanks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, one of the things that the book seems to be um, overarchingly um, trying to explore is how um, ideas are uh, you know, considered, um, well, ideas through and with science are communicated and represented. Um, mm. And the ways that this is done outside of language, even in sciences that are even if the um, if they're not formally acknowledged, so even thinking about the epigenetic uh, landscape representations um, that the science and the landscape itself, the production of it, the communication of it, is tactile. It's uh, sensual. Um, and, and not necessarily linguistic and sort of encouraging us to think how this operates in fields outside of uh, the formal sciences, but also within the formal sciences as well, mm -hmm. ways that might not be, um, might, might not be totally acknowledged. Um, so yes, if I could just say one more thing, actually, yeah. I wanted to say um, the other thing that the epigenetic landscape has um, is ambiguity. <laughs> and it's, it's plasticity, yes, but it's also ambiguity. It's not easily pinned down. It exceeds its representation yeah, ambiguously. Uh, uh, on that note, could I have you um, just riff a little bit on metaphor, which is a, like, mm. sort of a really um, important, it seems like, methodological orientation for you. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, we all know and love Emily Martin's wonderful The Egg and the Sperm, right? Yes. <laughs> um, the idea that metaphor constructs um, what you see and, and that metaphors are ways of thinking. They're, we think with metaphor. And so, and if Susan Sontag says, oh, no, we can't have metaphor. We need an exact science and illness is metaphor. We can't, we should eschew all metaphor. But in fact, Metaphor is the engine of scientific thought, and that space between an exact representation 
and a metaphoric representation. That's the place where the thinking happens. Um, when I think about comics, you think of it as the gutter. That's the place where the activity, the movement, the freedom, the creativity comes. But metaphor in general is a powerful engine of scientific thought. And um, Waddington knew that. And I think scientists today know it as well. So, um, you know, the idea that language has authority. Actually, I think authority is not the important thing as far as science goes. The important thing is ambiguity and space to catalyze um, creative thinking and doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things you do really nicely in, um, I think it's chapter three of the book on um, the graphic embryo. So thinking about mm -hmm. graphic medicine um, in the in the spirit and uh, thank goodness um, more recent popular interest in, in graphic novels, you you show that Waddington and other scientists have used um, forms of animation, sort of graphic medicine, to, um, to convey ideas about epigenetics. But actually, there's also this very um, close link um, in the ways that the technologies of science work. Um, that parallel yeah. ways in which um, sort of graphic uh, graphic medicine works in terms of animation, but also seriality and mm -hmm. um, and also um, oh rhythm as well. So mm -hmm. breaking things into frames in a way that show a patterned process over time. Um, yeah. So can you yeah. ex explain a little bit about this similarity? Well, um, first of all, I would say that it's important to distinguish between what Waddington was theorizing when he got to epigenetics in, say, 1940 and afterwards, and what he and the others at um, Strange Ways were doing in the 20s and 30s, because there they were talking about embryonic development, and they hadn't really worked through epigenetics yet. But if you could film an embryo developing or a cell dividing, and First, what you do is you do freeze frame pictures of it. So you've got these pictures, almost like panels in a comic later. You know, you've got these pictures, and then you run them together. So then you see the thing developing. You see the thing moving. So it becomes animated. And in that act of animation, um, you also have the opportunity to run time back and forward the way you can run back and forward a film strip you know, a, a film, mm -hmm. and um, that's weirdly and beautifully connected to that tissue culture work they were first doing at um, at the Strangeways Laboratory in the 20s and 30s, um, where they actually could take tissue that seemed to be dead, you know, that wonderful piece of sausage that Waddington got at the butcher shop, took it, cultured it, and here it was dead, but he made it live again. So time can run backwards and forwards. Now, um, there is, you know, there you can make the argument, and um, Hannah Landecker and Chris Kelty wonderfully make the argument that um, there's almost a straight line between the use of freeze frame and then um, sped up film in um, biological experimentation and biological research, and then that that takes us to the use of film now. But what what I ask them to sort of think about and what I interrupt in there is to say that actually 
the comic itself, which is a series of panels, which you read as if you were suturing them together and making them animated, and which then finally becomes the animated cartoon, is the missing step in that. And um, the fun part about that for me was um, linking together some work I had done earlier in Liminal Lives and realizing that um, when the scientists at the Strange Voice Laboratory in Britain, just during and right after World War II, or before, during, and after, were... Um, working with film, they were doing it partially because it was good for them in terms of getting uh, monetary support for what they were doing and getting publicity. Mickey Mouse had just come out, and they, in the poems they wrote, they were very explicit that they needed to imitate Mickey Mouse and his gait, in other words, this animated character, in order to get support and interest in their scientific research on tissue culture and embryonic development. How cool is that? I love it. <laughs> I love the images in, um, in the book of the um, sort of the, the standards for uh, uh, conveying emotion in the figures in comics oh, as well. Like yes. this is what an angry person looks like in the comics. And it's like, oh, Isn't yeah, I can rec totally recognize that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the, your work on the, the um, graphic embryo, I just want to signal, um, reads as a really nice conversation um, with, uh, Kelty and Landecker about their history and you sort of showing how we sort of need, can also think in a different and really uh, importantly different direction about the history they give. And then also a conversation with um, Nick Hopwood and the Cambridge mm. group who were mm -hmm. doing a lot of work on the history of um, visualization and the embryo as well. And your, your own involvement with that group um, and conversations yeah. with them about um, even in our own field of, of history, sociology, anthropology, um, uh, mm -hmm. humanistic studies of, of science that are chosen to be left in and left out. Um, and then also, I'm really glad that you mentioned um, your uh, previous work, uh, Liminal Lives. So thinking about Waddington in the uh, in the earlier period, people at, working at Strange Ways, and then also mm -hmm. your um, other really, I feel like, important. Uh, book among your many books that are flowing through um, this chapter is the graph Graphic Medicine Manifesto. Oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> we, we just wanted to um, continue to think a little bit more about um, graphic medicine. And here I'm going to hand the mic over to Beatrice. Okay, great. So you present us with several images besides Mickey Mouse of graphic comics. And can you tell us what values they would obscure and highlight of the field of epigenetics? What, okay, can, what values they would obscure? Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, and, and how they would represent epigenetics? Is that, yes. is that what you're asking? Okay, sorry, I'm having a hard time hearing, I think. Um, so the values that these comics would obscure, um, well, I suppose you, I don't think of them as obscuring values. I think of them as extending and embracing additional values. But I suppose you could say if there's a value that's being obscured, it's the value of uh, singularity, precision, and autonomy. Singularity and precision being the representation of something scientific like, um, you know, an embryo is an embryo. We know what that is. We can stage it. We know exactly where it belongs. 
But then you get some of the amazing work on embryology by Paula Knight or David Small's fantastic book um, or even Kaiseleka's work, and you realize embryos are not just one thing, to quote Virginia Woolf on To the Lighthouse. They are many things. <laughs> and one of the things they definitely are is um, contextual, and they have meanings that extend beyond the merely medical or the merely scientific, or I would even say they connect and they expand what the medical purview really should be to be thinking about the embryo to the woman carrying it, to the environment in which, it, in which it's coming into being, to the community which might receive the embryo as, um, you know, figuring aspects, say, of disability that have powerfully, uh, that have powerful community once the embryo is born, you know, people with disability waiting for that embryo with disability to be out there and be part of that community. So um, I'm not sure if that helps, but that's sort of a start. Tell me what you think about that. Yes, that's great. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the, um, the ways to think about the book is um, sort of imagining different ways of uh, forms of relationships among media biology, and also ecology. So thinking mm -hmm. in this um, ways of being and beings in sort of environments, either construed as um, what we'd conventionally call natural environments or built environments, political, institutional um, environments, and how these, um, your book offers a way of seeing how they connect across uh, different scales and scales mm -hmm. of time and also scales of space. And in one place you write, and I think this is, um, I really appreciated this, is that your aim is to access more complex understandings of, de of development at multiple yeah. scales. And so development is not only um, sort of an, an, a, a history of embryology or thinking about embryology and those necessarily, but in, um, three of the chapters of the book, you're looking at um, landscape design and mm -hmm. um, bio art, this um, particular mm -hmm. project um, going on in uh, Berlin to try to think about ways of imagining development. Um, and so I wonder um, whether we could ask you a little bit um, about um, bio art in particular. And here I'm going to have uh, Rebecca take over. Sure. Well, Art is pervasive throughout the book, and uh, not only in the epigenetic landscapes and their visual representations, but in the way that you present visual art and these types of multi-sensory performances to us. And in Chapter 7, you discuss bioart presented at the Art Laboratory Berlin, and mm -hmm. in other chapters, you discuss the works of lam landscape architects and uh, multi-sensory performative installations. We're interested in learning about how you found these individuals, collectives, and pieces, and why you chose those works to represent the epigenetic landscape. Oh, that's such a great question. And it's making me think that one of the feminist aspects of this book, I think, is 
acknowledging and going with and it, with the personal, right? In other words, rather than thinking the personal is that subjective thing that taints your ability to produce knowledge, I think for a feminist, the personal is like serendipity. Follow the people that you come in contact with and see what you can learn from them. And I was very lucky to have been introduced by the uh, bioartist Suzanne Anker when I was going to Berlin to the community at Art Laboratory Berlin. And those people um, became close friends of mine, but they also taught me a tremendous amount and uh, put me into a context where I was learning from a range of people from tissue culture scientists to uh, bio artists of all sorts. And um, and also learning the limits of my own ability to do bio art. I mean, that experience of learning how to work with a PCR machine and learning how to do pipetting was really fun and humbling because it's hard. And um, I enjoyed that tremendously and felt like what we were doing there was almost like performing a kind of communal performance art <laughs> around um the sort of around the edges of or the, um, you know, interwoven uh, communities of biology and art and kind of even theater. So um, in uh, that that chapter was really um, came out of the experience of just listening to the people at Art Laboratory Berlin as they spoke about the varieties of development. Now, the kind of development I was dealing with in the chapters on landscape architecture, which was also tremendously fun for me, um, had an interesting slippage. I mean, I, when I was writing the book, I thought, oh, how am I going to organize this? It's huge. All right, well, I have the three images of the epigenetic landscape the river, the ball on the hill, and the view from behind or underneath. And so I got very interested in riparian landscapes, you know, river-based landscapes. And I found, again, because of a lucky accident, I found the work of Honorata Mater and Dilip de Kunhar with these fantastic landscape architect, architect team at the University of Pennsylvania who do work with rivers deltas, the Mississippi, um, and I started reading their work and thinking about that as almost the embodiment of, or the, you know, making kinetic the idea, the first epigenetic landscape of the river. Um, so at first it was development as in how does this river flow, how does land develop, but then it became very clear that in their later work, Mater and de Kunha were also talking about development in the economic force, the idea of bringing development to the quote-unquote underdeveloped world. And what I found so powerful about what they do is that when they are looking at a river delta and discovering that the act of mapping that river does violence to the actual ebb and flow over the course of a year of that water, that is connected to the violence that's done in multinational development when people come in, when a country comes in, you know, when, when England comes into India and decides that they're going to rationalize what's going on with its landscape. And so um, 
I was just so interested in the the sort of slippage of the idea of development from something that is um, that we think of as being uh, a purely positive good <laughs> into something that actually contains in it a certain kind of violence and needs to be rethought. Um, I didn't do as much as I would have liked to do with the idea of a forcible um, teleology of development, the idea that even when we're talking about embryonic, embryonic development, there's a teleology and there's an outside of that. But recently I was talking to Rosemary Garland Thompson, who is a disability studies scholar, and we had a long conversation about the idea that the normate development of an embryo is itself a violent teleology because the embryo could develop in another way. So that's connected too. Yeah. Um, the um, One of the things that I want to signal for people who haven't read the book yet, um, but I hope will, will soon, is that in the chapters on um, landscape architecture, you nicely tack back to some of the conferences, conversations, and these sorts of things that Waddington was having with, in the field that um, where you had options, sort of, of ways to go and ways of thinking and, and um, a scale or contextual process-based thinking about the embryo that then gets pulled maybe um, Maybe not directly, but through images and um, and through the different readings that people were doing, gets pulled into other fields. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, including including landscape architecture and mm-hmm. the um, the sort of the, the issue of um, I can't I can't remember whether it was um, it, talking about Jenks, the the the, or the landscape designer, but thinking about. Ian- cr- Creative misfits, and here oh yeah, I, it's yeah, it's Ian McCarg, I think. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah, Ian McCarg. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and I, I, on this point, I wanted to um, ask Leia to take over um, to talk about how to think about um, scientific models and um, what she was thinking of as outsider consciousness. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. sure. I was really curious. Um, as I, I looked at your professional bio and noted that you have an interest in marginal zones and outsider consciousness, I was wondering how, how do you see those interests manifesting throughout your study of, of epigenetics and, and the ways that models work as that liminal space? Oh, lovely. Yes. Um, again, it cut out a little bit. So I heard outsider consciousness, but I didn't hear the first thing you said. You said interest in? In marginal zones. I was. Uh, oh, marginal zones. Yes. Right. Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, well, uh, let's see. So the question now, I, since I went back to that, now I'm having a hard time remembering. So what you're asking basically is how does my interest in marginal zones and outsider consciousness come into my interest in epigenetics? Is Absolutely. That, okay, good. Um, well, I guess one of the things, if you're thinking about epigenetics as a structure for thinking about the relationship between um, the development of an organism and its environment. Um, One of the things that's profoundly important to me is to make epigenetics, to, to reclaim the possibilities that the theory, if you will, the scientific theory of epigenetics 
can let us think more deeply about what it is that pulls an organism one way or another as it's developing and what the impacts are on the organism of things beyond the narrowly genetic. Um, you know, feminism, I think we've been excited by the potential of epigenetics because all of a sudden you can think not only of the influence of the maternal cytoplasm and of mitochondria, but you can think of the influence of the mother and of the community on the um, developing, say, developing child or developing fetus and then child, uh, and that you could even think about how things like um, structural racism trauma, etc., shape the growth of the child. Um, some of that, I suppose, is outsider consciousness, as in thinking these, these people's lives need to be testified to and given a voice. Um, that's something that's also true in graphic medicine, the really crucial thing of finding a way to speak for those whose voices are kept out of the conversation. And in terms of epigenetics, um, as epigenetics is thought of as narrowly descriptive of which genes fire and which genes don't, and as epigenetic research is being used pretty much to confirm uh, genetic models, then it's not living up to its potential really to, to bring in the outsider, to bring in those people or those um, zones of experience that basically have been declared off limits, not worth thinking about, not worth attending to. And I think because we, we society ha or medicine has taken that position on them, um, it's really not doing the medicine it should be. Society is really not being the society it should be. So I'm very committed to um, doing what I think literature and art have always done, which is um, to, I'm committed to reclaiming the broader and more ambiguous and um, more um, powerfully liminal aspects of experience, which were originally in epigenetics as Waddington first started thinking about it, but which got kind of cleansed from it and then were warehoused, if you will, or were kept in a standing reserve in literature and art and science. And we can find them there and reintroduce them to the field. That's great. Susan, we have so many more questions about um, <laughs> the, the arrangement of the book itself as, as, an, as an art and science object. Um, but we've taken uh, so much of your time already and really, really grateful for this conversation. So I just wanted to wrap up actually um, with a long quote from you, uh, which, we, which we particularly admired that comes, um, comes at the end of the book. And you pose this question um, and, and give us an answer to, to the question question of why we should care about epigenetics. And now uh, what, what you write is that um, we should learn about epigenetics so that we're able to contest the way the field has been and is being redirected and narrowed in scientific research and medical practice. We should do so to recapture the potential of the epigenetic landscape as a methodological prompt crafted at the intersection of art and science that can, when used creatively, amplify the options we have for exploring the complex network of interactions, that's biological development. 
that we should do so because over uh, because over its developmental history, the field has seen many promises, promising interventions that were resisted, reinterpreted, redirected, or refused, and that we should return to. And because even in this frequently reductive, deterministic, post-genomic era, feminist scientists are hoping that the epigenetic landscape will enable them to forge a more multi-dimensional science. But, and here I'll say this is my, this is a great part, but there's one additional reason to learn about epigenetics and the epigenetic landscapes. Das ist ja toll. So for the German speakers, yeah, that's just pretty cool. It's just pretty awesome. So I like yeah. that in the, in the end, you also return to the sort of the awe and wonder uh, which is what mm. we see a lot of feminist science studies scholars doing as well. Um, not not rejecting or resisting scientists, but be using them as a source of inspiration and sort of um, oh, yeah. a creative, creatively becoming um, more perhaps, or becoming differently as well. Uh, alongside. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciated it. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being such great uh, readers of my work. I'm really touched and it was a very powerful experience. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.